Hello, church. If you would open to John chapter 20. John 20, verse 24 to 29. We'll look at the same passage we saw uh, last week, but we were going to focus on a a portion of that that we did not look at last week. John 20, starting in verse 24. This is the Word of God. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. And so, Lord, we ask for a belief today. You are not standing physically in front of us. And so we have to take your words by faith. We take the eyewitness accounts. We take this word of God that has been preserved even until today that we can read this passage. And Lord, we pray for belief. We pray for belief, not only that these things are true, but that you did rise from the dead and that because you rose from the dead, you are Lord and God. And Lord, we pray that everyone in this room, Lord, would be able to say, my Lord and my God. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask for you to work in such a way that this be true in every heart here. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, uh, the thing I want to get us immediately thinking on this morning in this passage is uh, foundational Christian beliefs. Um, I saw, I showed Priscilla earlier this week a video clip um, of, a, of a young woman who was a worship leader at, at some church. And she was standing in front of everybody and, and said, uh, she was, it was a little two minute clip, but in that two minute clip, about 50 times, she said, I feel or I've experienced, and she was basing everything about her view of God on her feelings, on her uh, emotions. And uh, for many of us, that's concerning uh, to hear someone base their whole view of God on their emotions and their feelings. Um, I maybe even more concerning is something I was looking at this week. Uh, many of you know Legionnaire Ministries put out a study in 2020, uh, a big, uh, a big study in America. It's called the the State of Theology, where they surveyed Americans' views on God, on Christianity, on many issues, and they started by asking. They ask us a, a number of questions, but they ask this question to just Americans in general, a number of them. Uh, was Jesus just a good teacher or was he God? And uh, 52% uh, 
said that they believed he was a good teacher and not God. It's not very surprising. Uh, They asked the same question to evangelicals. Now, they tried to narrow down this category of evangelicals by asking about their views of the Bible, if they attend church regularly, things like that, to kind of get that, that category smaller. And then they asked them the same question. Was Jesus just a good teacher, or is he God? And in 2020, 30% said he is just a good teacher, he is not God, of evangelicals. Now, I found out this week that they redid that study last year, 2022, Asked the same question to evangelicals. Was Jesus just a good teacher? Or is he God? That number jumped from 30% up to 43% in two years. Now, we could sit here and talk about uh, how that could possibly happen. I don't know. I don't want to spend our time doing that. I want to put forth what I think a, a big problem is. I think so often churches assume basic foundational doctrines. They assume people believe those things without explicitly teaching them. And um, it's problematic historically that when the church assumes certain doctrines, what happens is you eventually lose them. Uh, you, you, you lose them. And heresy begins to enter into the church. And then the next generation of Christians has to go back and combat all the heresy, purge the church from the false doctrine, and then reestablish just basic Christian truths again. And this is a repeated pattern in the church throughout history. I mentioned uh, last week that going back, we could go back 200 years or so, up until the 1970s, Liberalism made its way into the church, especially in the West and in America. Liberalism worked its way in, denying things like the inerrancy of Scripture, denying miracles, even the bodily resurrection of Christ, denying things like heaven and hell, and and, and many central doctrines of the Christian faith. And why, why was that? How did that even happen? How, how do we even get to that? that point and, um, where liberalism would creep in. And I would suggest that after the Puritans, the, a more healthy time uh, in the history of our country, uh, that many began to assume certain basic doctrines like that Jesus is God. Those things began to be assumed in seminaries. They began to be assumed in churches. And then the smooth arguments of the liberals came in and people were not equipped to deal with it. And so many churches caved to this liberalism. Many seminaries caved to the liberalism. And then our parents' generation and their parents had to fight back and push back that. I mentioned some names last week of the Reformed flavor. Uh, But there was Arminian uh, fundamental Baptists that were pushing back aggressively liberalism as well, to which we should be deeply thankful. And so this is a repeated pattern in the church, that if the church doesn't explicitly teach foundational doctrines, we will lose them. We will lose them. And so, when, and when I say foundational doctrines, here, here's maybe a way to think of this. When you come to a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, and, and Paul says that if Christ has not risen, then you're still in your sins. That's not a secondary doctrine at that point. 
If Christ is not risen, we're still in our sins. That's a foundational doctrine. That's a primary doctrine. Uh, Another example would be when Paul rebukes Peter publicly to his face. And then it says in the text, because he stood condemned. That is, Peter stood condemned. Why? Well, it tells us. His, his, uh, His life was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so Paul had to rebuke him publicly for his view on the law, for his view on salvation by faith alone. It's not a secondary doctrine. Whether the Bible is the Word of God or not is not something Christians can agree to disagree on. Uh, The identity of Jesus. Was He just a man? Was He just God and not a man? All of these things. The identity of Jesus, whether He is God or man or both, are not small issues. Uh, These are fundamental to Christianity. And if someone disagrees, the Bible is not inspired, Jesus isn't God, salvation isn't by faith alone, they're not in Christianity. They're outside of Christianity making these arguments. Um, However much their moral views or political views may overlap with Christianity, they are not on the same team as Christianity Uh, Christianity is made of certain beliefs about Jesus. And if we lose those, we lose Christianity. We lose Christianity. And so we must continue to go back to the foundations and make sure that we're standing uh, on these foundations. I want to do this this morning just looking at verse 28. That's all we're going to look at. We'll look at the context a little bit, but we're mainly going to look at verse 28 That phrase from the mouth of Thomas, my Lord and my God. And I want to take it in three parts. My Lord, my God, and then third, my Lord and my God. And I want to see that phrase together, my Lord and my God, as a mere confessional statement. Uh, and, And what I mean by that is that Thomas isn't telling us everything a Christian must believe about God, man, sin, hell, heaven, judgment, the church, the kingdom, the second coming of Christ, right? He isn't giving us everything that could be known or said. Uh, Thomas is saying something that a Christian should believe and confess. He is saying something about this Christ who died and rose, that He is curios and theos, that He is both Lord and God of all. And so let's look at Lord, curios. Uh, maybe we should start by just saying this. It doesn't mean what some people have said it means. Uh, it mean, Some people have said, well, curios, He's man, uh, God, He's God. So here's the God-man. Now we believe Jesus is both God and man, fully God, fully man, we believe that. That's not what this passage is saying. That's not what curios means. Uh, Post-resurrection, every time this word curios is used for Jesus or in connection with Jesus, it's referring to a title in His exalted person. So for example, Philippians 2, 6. Though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a theme to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking on the form of His servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is curios to the glory of God the Father. And so in Scripture, there are 7,000 uses of curios or Lord in the Old Testament. Curios, obviously, that's the Greek translation. But it's referring to Yahweh 700 times. And nobody questions that when you look at the Old Testament and Lord is used for Yahweh. Uh, everybody would agree with that. But when you come to the New Testament and curios begins to be used for Christ, for Jesus Christ, 616 times, now we have all sorts of cults and, uh, and false religions that would begin to deny that. Uh, it is very rare in the New Testament to find Jesus being referred to without that title, Lord, connected to his name. So you'll see Jesus is Lord or Christ the Lord uh, repeatedly as if that was his new name. Uh, not just Jesus of Nazareth, um, but Lord connected to it. Carl Truman said, historically, one could make the argument that Christian theology as a whole is one long extended reflection upon the meaning and significance of the most basic doxological declaration. Jesus is Lord. Now, get what he just said. All of theology is basically just unpacking that Jesus is Lord? What about Him being God? Thomas says, my Lord and my God. How could you even get around the fact that Thomas is calling Him God? I mean, people deny this. How, how would you even begin to deny when he's literally saying this? And I'm not a heretic, uh, but if I was, I would try to argue this. When he says, my God, to Jesus, he's not really speaking to Jesus. That's what I would try to say. Uh, he isn't really speaking to Jesus, therefore he's not really calling Jesus God. Now, one Johannian scholar uh, put it like this, I'll quote him. He said, there are virtually no scholars or commentators historically who have attempted to make the argument that Jesus, or that Thomas isn't speaking to Jesus. Because the text so clearly says that he is. Okay, The way that John writes this, verse 27, 28, and 29, is airtight. You cannot argue that Thomas is not speaking to Jesus. It says in verse 27, he said to Thomas. Verse 28, Thomas said to him. Verse 29, Jesus said to him. There's no other way to get around it. Thomas and Jesus are talking. And what Thomas says, he says to Jesus. Now, Muslims have an interesting way to view this. Uh, they would say, among some others, but I think this originated with the Muslims, that Jesus or that Thomas is actually using profanity here. Uh, he's, he's taking the Lord's name in vain. So, my God, like, my gosh, you know, a, a type of profanity in, in, in a moment of amazement. He, he blurts out this profan profanity in the face of Christ. Uh, that's not really a serious argument because in a Jewish context, someone like Thomas is not going to just use the Lord's name in vain in front of Christ. And if he did, Christ would have corrected him. Christ would have certainly uh, not just ignored that. And, uh, and Jesus does not correct him. 
And so that has not been treated as a serious argument. Here, here's another way people try to argue around this. What I would just call stubborn denial. Just stubborn denial. Um, at least once a year, I'm in a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness. And um, we'll go back and forth on some different passages that, that I want them to look at. Many of those passages, they've already been taught about and taught how to work around and things like that. Uh, but at some point in the conversation, they'll hear something that they haven't been trained on or they forgot, uh, and, and they'll just adamantly deny. No, that passage can't say Jesus is God because Jesus isn't God. <laughs> That's, that becomes the argument. Um, just this refusal to even look at the passage anymore because they have already had this preconceived idea, Jesus isn't God, therefore the Bible couldn't say that. And that's very convenient for a Jehovah's Witness because they have a different translation of the Bible than any of us here, whether you have an ESV or a KJV or a NIV or a New American Standard. Uh, any other English translation that's ever been translated, they have something called the New World Translation. And the New World Translation wasn't made by a group of scholars from different denominations, but only a scholar from the Jehovah's Witness camp who conveniently removed every reference to Christ being God. And so their Bible omits uh, every biblical text that would teach that. And so, um, so they'll, all, they'll give all sorts of, of arguments uh, to try to work around this. Here's a really basic one that, uh, just in terms of equipping us for these conversations, uh, John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Or the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. Who's the Word? Well, if you keep reading, it's the incarnate Christ uh, is the Word. So this is a clear reference that Jesus, the Word, is or was God. In the, uh, in the New World Translation, they omit the indefinite article that's translated was. And they say He was a God. They insert the word a. That kind of changes it, doesn't it? Uh, it? It drastically changes how that reads, but that's not in any original manuscript. Therefore, no other English translation puts the word A in there, but they do because they deny and believe that Jesus is not God. Um, because this is concerning because uh, Jehovah's Witnesses aren't just a, a, a tiny little minority of people. 20, there are 20 million Jehovah's Witnesses in the world. 20 million. Uh, Mormonism, more than, than half U.S. states, uh, Mormonism is the fastest growing religion. And they have an, er an errant view on Jesus. Uh, Unitarians are shockingly growing very fast, especially because of the internet, who deny uh, Jesus' divinity. And so we need a few passages in our mind and a few ways to talk to people who deny this and just for our own belief, uh, and I'm going to give us these in John, but John uh, chapter 8 is significant. We studied this quite a few years ago. Uh, this one make, made the Pharisees very angry and they accused Jesus of blasphemy because they knew what Jesus was saying. He said this, Before Abraham was, ego me, I am. He took on the covenant name of Yahweh and said, Before Abraham was born, 
Before Abraham existed, ego a me, I am. And they knew exactly what he was saying. That's why they picked up stones to stone him. They were outraged at the claim and they gave the claim of blasphemy and the accusation of blasphemy because they knew Jesus was claiming divinity. Uh, I'll give us another illustration. This one's in Mark chapter 2. In Capernaum, I think he angered people even more because what he did in Capernaum uh, was this was the time he's sitting in the house, he's teaching, and it's so packed full that they couldn't bring the paralytic to get in the house. Remember the story? So they went and they, they created a hole in the roof to drop the paralytic down into the room where Jesus was teaching. And it, when Jesus uh, went to go heal this man, he says, because of the faith of these people who brought this person before me, your sins are forgiven, he said to the paralytic. Your sins are forgiven which outraged all the Jews uh, because Jesus is claiming to forgive sins. This is what they said. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Were they right? Yeah, they're right. Jesus said, why do you question your hearts? Which is easier, to uh, that your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. Now think about this issue of forgiveness for a minute. There's a book that maybe some of you have heard of called The Sunflower. It's a little book uh, about 80 pages long. And it was written by a a Jew during the Holocaust. His whole family was killed uh, in the war. And toward the end of the war, he was taken in by Nazi uh, captors into a room with a young German soldier. This young German soldier was uh, badly wounded, about to die, coughing up blood and basically uh, said to this, this Jewish man, uh, we have done many evils to your people. I'm scared to stand before God. Will you forgive me? And the 60 pages of this little 80-page book is basically getting inside the head of this, uh, of this Jew going, can I forgive him? Do I even have the right to do that? I'm still alive. Look at all these people who are dead. Do I have the right to forgive this man? The the greatest sins that have happened haven't happened against me. And then he he wrote this little book and he began to send it out to religious clergy uh, after this time and it broke this international debate on ethics uh, about the nature of forgiveness. Let me give you a modern illustration. Um, If after church today, two families from the church were to go to the park, kids are playing and everything, everybody's having a good time, and then these robbers come up and they rob, uh, they rob you, and two of the men step up, the fathers step up to protect their families as they should, um, and, and they get beat up, and they get mugged, and they get hospitalized in critical condition. The kids and the, the wives are in shock, and I find out about this, and I go to the hospital later that day, and I go up to the hospital bed where these men are in critical condition, and I say, guys, it's okay. It's okay, brothers. I found your muggers and I've forgiven them. I mean, do you see how, how absolutely absurd that sounds? What right do I? You, you would, if that was you sitting there, you would say, who do you think you are? What, I'm the one laying in the hospital bed who just got mugged. You don't have a right to forgive the people who mugged me. Jesus is standing in forgiving sins of the paralytic. What does that imply? that the paralytic sins were against him. That he is God. 
And therefore, He has the authority to forgive sins. The person who has the ability to forgive sins is the person who has been greatest, uh, most greatly offended. And so what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that one of the ways that we should seek to understand the divinity of Christ is that Christ is doing the works of God. And He claimed this Himself in John 5.19. He says, the Son does whatever the Father does. Whatever the Father does, that is what the Son is doing also. If you are doing the same things as God the Father, you're equal to God the Father. And you are God. It, it is a claim to divinity. Now, uh, skeptics will uh, try to work around these things and just say, kind of uh, make statements. Maybe you've heard this. The Bible doesn't ever say that Jesus is God. Um, well, it does. Uh, numerous times, Romans 9.5, the Christ who is God over all. The Christ who is God over all. John 1.1, 1, 1, unless you remove or mess up this verse, like I mentioned earlier, it says the Word was God. Hebrews 1.8, of the Son, capital S, Son, the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Second Peter 1 1, our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Titus 2 13, the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. John 10 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Colossians 1 9, for in him that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And, and so look, there, I understand there are so many things that Christians disagree on. This is not one of them. The Bible is absolutely clear that Jesus is divine. He's not kind of God. He's not almost God. He is God. And every Christian will happily join Thomas saying, He is my Lord and my God. And I want to look at that phrase, my Lord and my God. He puts these together. And how much should we make of that? That he takes both these phrases and puts them together. I, th I think we need to see this at a few levels. I think we need to see it personally, corporately, politically, eschatologically, and doxologically. I think all that is bound up in that little phrase. First, the personal. Uh, this interaction with Thomas is in many ways the crescendo to the Gospel of John. Uh, we are seeing here in, in, in the, uh, the, the disciples, the doubter coming to faith. The whole Gospel of John is about coming to faith in Christ. And here we see Thomas coming to faith in Christ. Thomas sees before him the crucified and wounded and risen Christ. In other words, the gospel is standing before Thomas. He is looking at the good news of the gospel with his own eyes. He's seeing the good news of the gospel. He is seeing his salvation before him. It's not being proclaimed to him in words or, or written on paper. It's literally standing before him. And his faith is demonstrated with a confession that Jesus is Lord and God. Jesus assures him of this con confession and of this faith in verse 29, and basically uh, says, you, you believe the gospel, Thomas, because of what you're seeing, but many will believe without seeing. 
Blessed are they who believe without saying. Uh, uh, Romans 10 takes this idea of belief in Christ and confession of Christ and weds them together. And it would be wrong for us not to remember this passage. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, curios, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will what? Be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So the belief in the heart about the resurrection brings forth a confession of the mouth of Christ's Lordship. And at this point, I don't think anyone could have stopped Thomas from confessing. The belief provoked the confession. You couldn't have stopped his mouth from opening and confessing Christ as Lord because of what's happening in his heart with true and genuine faith. It wasn't music that worked him up. It wasn't an altar call. It wasn't a really manipulative, smooth pastor who got him to, to, to make a decision. Um, his tears weren't playing a part in any of this. I don't think he even had a full understanding at all of justification or of the atoning work of Christ. His belief and confession were proven legitimate, not because of the theological depth of understanding or the feelings or the emotions he felt in that moment. They were proven as he continued to live, demonstrating this man Thomas believes Jesus is Lord and he believes Jesus is God. You say, how do we know that? Well, if we trace out the rest of Thomas's life, uh, we know that it in a few years, the apostles would send him as the first missionary to India. And he would go into India, and about 40 years after this encounter with Christ, he would be martyred in India by jealous uh, priests there who all the accounts say that he was probably speared. And uh, look, none of us, maybe um, most of us probably will not ever die for Christ. But every one of us who's believed in Christ will live for Him. That is the result of believing in Him. is confessing Him and continuing in belief and confession. Now, some may say, yes, but many confess Jesus and then fall away. So what do we do about that? And I would say this. I would say they, they confessed Him without the Holy Spirit. Remember uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So a true confession of Christ is only one you can make by or in the Holy Spirit. And that confession that's made in the Holy Spirit is ongoing. Even in the face of persecution that may arise. Now, um, let me state the obvious here. Thomas could have said a lot of other things at this moment than what he says. He could have said things like, Wow! <laughs> I thought you were dead. Everybody said you were alive. I, I was wrong. You know, like there, there, think of how many things he could have said. But when he sees the resurrected Christ in front of him, what comes out like a knee jerk reaction? to a, a real belief in the resurrected Christ, 
My Lord and my God. Which is what every person who has truly believed in the resurrected Christ will say and confess. And I don't think that my diminishes the universality of Jesus' lordship and divinity. Uh, for, for example, uh, in Psalm 35, verse 23, David confesses this to Yahweh. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. He flips it. Same phrase. My God and my Lord. And now Thomas is using this for Christ. Corporately, my Lord and my God is a corporate confession. Um, many of you know the Shema, uh, the Jews call it, uh, was the primary creedal confession in Israel. Uh, over against all the polytheism and the other nations, um, they guarded their worship of Yahweh by saying what Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the Shema. Thomas is using Shema language here. The Lord our God sounds very similar to my Lord, my God. It's creedal language. It's Jewish creedal language that he's now applying to Christ. So for any Jew, these were primary terms used to refer to Yahweh. Lord God. The Lord, our God, my Lord, my God. You can hear the similarity there. Carl Truman uh, said, Jesus is Lord isn't about feelings, but it is publicly expressing a doctrinal confession and a profession of personal faith because one's status as a Christian cannot be separated from his words. And so the words that Christians continue to confess even into the New Testament. You'll see this in Paul. I'm not going to highlight all the passages right now, but numerous passages in the New Testament. Jesus is referred to as God. Jesus is referred to as Lord. And Paul is speaking to the church about this. It is a creedal or corporate confession. I don't think we realize what I'm about to say. I want to make sure we're paying attention to this, this, uh, this point right here. We, we have it so easy in America at this point. I don't think that's going to last for much longer. But right now, you can gather with the people of God and say, Jesus is Lord, and nothing happens. Or so it seems. Right? No consequence. Um, very little suffering that's going to come on that statement for, an, for your modern American. We forget because we haven't suffered, as soon as church members in this church and other churches around will begin to get reports of these things in coming days, unless some massive revival and change happens, as soon as people start losing jobs, taxes, and penalizations come in the financial realm, jail or mockery or rejection or other forms of persecution, as soon as those things begin to come, we will realize what we're actually saying when we say Jesus is Lord. It's not going to sound like some generic phrase anymore. It's going to sound highly political. Very political. Many have proclaimed this phrase unto their death. You know that in the new world, launched at the resurrection, it is a world in which Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. 
And from the first time that phrase was used after Jesus' resurrection, people began to feel the full force of Caesar when they made the statement, Jesus is Lord. We see uh, Peter stand up in Acts 2.36 at the end of his sermon there at Pentecost, and he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he took that statement that was just in Israel, a corporate confession, a personal confession, and he takes it to the streets of Rome. And he said, And that place that you were supposed to and you are obligated to hail Caesar as Lord, Christ is Lord. And you've crucified Christ. Interestingly, uh, during the time that John was written, uh, the, the Roman emperor Dementia, and uh, this is in AD 81, he actually wished to be addressed as our Lord and our God. So you could actually argue that Thomas is making a political statement here. I don't, I don't think that's on Thomas's mind, but when John wrote this, it's very possible that was on John's mind. That the leader of the Roman Empire wanted to be referred to as my Lord and my God, and Thomas makes that statement about Christ. Kostenberger, a commentator on John, said, Thomas's words on a secondary level may be designated to counter Roman emperor worship. Mitchell Reddish says John understood worship as a political act. Through worship, one declares one's allegiance and one's loyalty. Guys, this leads to the last and final point, I think, where all of this has to push us. Um, making the statement or making the confession, Jesus is my Lord and my God, is personal, it is corporate, it is political but it is doxological and eschatological. This is not just said on this side of heaven, in other words. Uh, let me point out one or two things. If Jesus is saying, if, if Thomas is saying to Jesus, you're God, and then Jesus goes, you're just now you're believing this because you're seeing it? He's receiving that as worship. He's receiving that as a, uh, a declaration that He is God. Even the angels who aren't God wouldn't receive the term God. So, for example, in Revelation 19, when John uh, sees this vision, he says, I fell, fell down at the feet uh, to worship Him, that is, the angel, who said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. But Jesus is receiving worship and being called God from Thomas. And we see this two times in Matthew 28. Listen to these. Verse 8. After the resurrection, they departed quickly from the tomb for fear and great joy. They ran to tell the disciples and Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet. And listen, they worshipped him. First eyewitnesses that see Jesus grab his feet and they worship him. Did he rebuke them? No. He said, go get the brothers. Tell them to gather. I'm going to show up again. He, he received it. And in verse 16, when he sees the eleven post-resurrection, it says they worshipped him. The apostles 
worshipped him, and then he gave the great commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. He said that in response to their worship. And guys, when, when we get to heaven, here's a vision that is given to us in Revelation 5, verse 12. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then listen to what else is said in heaven. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. All the children in the room, this is simple enough for you to get it. Jesus is Lord and God. Every exalted saint in heaven who's already there is not bored of this. They are not tired of confessing that Jesus is Lord and God. This is the simplest and the greatest of truths. And may it never get old. I do believe when we get to heaven, we will see innumerable Thomases confessing Jesus is Lord and God. As we prepare to come to the table, I hope we can proclaim our faith in this Jesus, who is both Lord and God, at the table. I hope we can do that confidently knowing He has not just died for our sins, but He has risen. He is Lord and He is God. Um, if you are new, we do believe that the table that Christ gave to us is for those who have made that confession through baptism. That is a prerequisite to the, to the table. Um, so if you're baptized, please make your way and join us. Uh, I'll say to the members again, let's come with confidence believing who Christ is and what He's done. And let's proclaim this at the table. Father, some things are too great for our minds to wrap around. And this is certainly one of them. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Who can comprehend and begin to comprehend the glory of Your Son who is Lord and God? Lord, the world that we live in and that we're going to walk out of this building and go back into has no idea of Your Lordship and Your divinity. They do not fear it. They do not tremble at it. It means nothing. And Lord, the only reason that it means something to us is because You have been merciful to allow us to see it and to believe it. And so we praise You and we're humbled. And Lord, we pray that we would go out and believe these things to such an extent that we would confess Christ is Lord at all the appropriate times that we need to confess that. And Lord, that we would believe that You are our God so that we would trust You and not worry about money. 
not worry about our families, not worry about so many things that so easily make us worry. We pray that our view that You are God would calm our hearts and help us to rest in You. Lord, help us as we come to the table now. We proclaim these things in the name of Your Son. Amen.